Howdy, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter Laren. I will be your I'll be your tour guide for the spectacular and entertaining crumbling of Western civilization. Uh, someone in chat is asking who the chiseled shirtless guy is. Uh, it's either Socrates or Aristotle. I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember what image is up. Anyway, I'm kind of tired of talking about uh, the Ukraine-Russia thing. Um, but it is the number one topic in the news right now. So we're going to use it as a jumping off point to talk about some philosophy today. Um, and we've got four segments today that we're going to go through. The first one is uh, there is no we. Uh, and that will feature uh, an atheist Bible reading by yours truly. Uh, the second feature we'll, we'll do, the second segment will be called, Hey, remember that time we almost died? The third one, we'll do an, a little interlude for hypocrisy, because that's always fun. And finally, we will talk about dichotomous thinking dystopia. Welcome. Welcome to the dichotomous thinking dystopia. I was going to make little signs for these, but I didn't. Um, anyway, uh, first, before we do all that stuff, Look, we've got a lot of, uh, if you're new to Unsafe Space, welcome. We've got a lot of different shows here, uh, different series that we do. One is called uh, 451 Degrees. Uh, that's mostly about censorship. Uh, we have a Great Reset series. We have a Covfefe Break series. Uh, we're gonna, Soon we're going to launch Rebel Civics and some other ones. Um, and this series that you're watching now is called Dangerous Thoughts. It's live every Wednesday. We might not always do live, but it's been live and we continue to be doing live. It's live every Wednesday at whatever time this is, 5 p.m. Pacific time. Um, you know, I did joke about being the tour guide for the crumbling of Western civilization, but actually what we're trying to do on this show is help to build an intellectual arc here to preserve and defend and promote the crucial life-affirming, beautiful ideas responsible for the West's success. See that I made a biblical reference already with my arc. Um, this show is not really for normies. Uh, if you have ADD, uh, you'll probably have some trouble here. Your NPC programming will halt and catch fire. Uh, but if you're looking for some intellectual ammunition to fight the culture war uh, and some occasional intellectual sparring, you are in the right place. That's what we do here. So um, on Dangerous Thoughts, we practice thinking more deeply so we can better understand, articulate, apply, and promulgate the ideas that help humans to flourish and thrive here in reality. Before we start, a couple of reminders. Uh, don't forget to go to... Um, if you're on YouTube or wherever you are, don't forget to go to the subscribe button wherever you are. Um, please also head over to unsafespace.com. You can watch all the shows there. There's never any censorships. So even if we get canceled, we won't cancel ourselves from our own website. Um, you can also support us financially at unsafespace.com. We live off of donations. That's that's how we survive. Um, if you do support us financially, you get access to the community Discord where you can yell at me directly. You get your name in the credits. Um, depending on your level of, of contribution, get a weird grenade mug, um, which we're going to run out of soon. Um, but I think that's all of the housekeeping I need to do. Welcome people in chat. All right. There is no we. Let's do, let's do an, an atheist reads the Bible. This is a great way to offend everyone. Fear not, my atheist friends. I haven't abandoned reason for faith at all. Um, I'm also reading Aristophanes at the moment. 
but I'm not worshiping Dionysus. So, uh, I look, this is a real life Bible, real life Bible. Uh, and I'm going to read, I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to story. I'm going to read the parable of the good Samaritan. I can't believe I'm reading the Bible. All right, where is it now? I gotta find it. I just had it. All right. For those of you who are not familiar with this book, the address of this is Luke chapter 10, verse, I don't know, 30. So what's happening is this dude, this lawyer dude is, uh, Jesus is telling him to be nice to his neighbor and his lawyer dude's like, Hey, well, who's my neighbor? Cause he just, you know, he's trying to justify his own not niceness. All right. So then Jesus answered him and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring, an oil, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever you spend, whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer dude says, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Okay. I think I probably broke some kind of oath I made by opening the Bible, but that's over and done with. Give you some context here. Uh, the Jews considered the Samaritans half-breed heretics. They were uh, horrible mongrels. They had corrupted and defiled the Jewish religion. They were more repugnant than Gentiles. They were horrible. How does this relate to Ukraine? Because I said we're going to use Ukraine as a launching point for discussion today. Well, we're all hearing stories right now a certain country has let's call it fallen among thieves who stripped that country of its clothing and wounded it and we are being told that we must act and we're being told that in moral language we must be the good samaritan we must rush and save ukraine from an evil aggressor we have to save i've heard this a lot we have to save democracy from dictatorship. Um, and not at, not only are we being told we have to dress wounds and take care, uh, but we have to actually get into a fight with the thieves on Ukraine's behalf, or we should be. <laughs> Someone said everybody wants Ukraine as a launching point. Yeah, that was a poor choice of words, I guess, but uh, that's what the battle's over, Ukraine as a launching point, I guess. Anyway, um, I don't want to get into the weeds on Ukraine because this is shows about philosophy, not about, you know, geopolitics. Um, so let's put aside right now the the validity of the mainstream narrative. Let's just 
let's just accept it actually. Um, and uh, we'll get into later in the show, as I mentioned, we'll get into what we'll get into some dichotomous thinking. But um, for now, let's assume that the the mainstream mer- narrative is one hundred percent correct. Putin is one hundred percent bad, 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 evil, rotten to the core. Um, he, he was not provoked in any way. Everyone has been an angel and a saint to him, and his behavior is purely tyrannical and imperialistic. And let's assume that Zelensky and Ukraine uh, are 100% good. They are perfect defenders of individual rights. They are the ideal beacon of Western civilization. Let's also assume that the rest of NATO, including the United States, is 100% good. They are also, they acted with complete benevolence towards Russia for the past 30 years. They never tried to leverage Ukraine to undermine Russian interests. They've been perfect defenders of individual rights. I know all this is fantasy world, but let's just accept that crazy narrative a little bit. And I know that, you know, people can argue there's nuance here correctly. Uh, but let's put all those objectives aside. Let's steel man the narrative for now and say, okay, that's the situation. So you want to be the good Samaritan. You believe that's the situation because you watch CNN and you want to be the good Samaritan. You want to demonstrate your compassion, your benevolence, your righteousness. Uh, you, you want Jesus to tell parables about you that atheists will read 2,000 years later. So what do you do? What do you do? Do you, um, I mean, there's options, right? There's, there's lots of options. Think about maybe what the Good Samaritan would do, right? Do you um, put a Ukraine flag in your Twitter profile like Kathy Young? Because that's helpful. Right. Um, maybe you could share articles that compare Zelensky to George Washington because they're the same. Um, or if you really want to do something effective, you could um, you could retweet Clint Watts call to have NATO's Air Force bomb Russian troops. By the way, ironically, his Twitter handle is named Selected Wisdom. I guess it's very, very selected. Dubious wisdom. But you could say, hey, hey. Why, why don't why don't we bomb the Russians? That's what a good Samaritan would do, right? Because um, you have to show that you're good. You're you're on the side of good. So what would the good Samaritan do? Let's remind ourselves of what he did actually do in the story. Um, he stopped. He was probably on his way somewhere important. I mean, people didn't go on vacation a lot there back then. I don't think so. He's you know probably going somewhere important. Um, he spent his own time and his own energy dressing wounds. He paid the hospital bill out of his own pocket and took care of took care of this person. So based on that, what would he do if he believed the mainstream narrative and wanted to be good by these standards? He wanted to be the same the same level of goodness. Well, would he he might maybe send money? He might send a truck of Starlink equipment like Elon Musk did, right? He might even take up arms and go to Ukraine himself to help, I guess, if you're going to throw in fighting the thieves as part of his, his his nobility, right? And by the way, Ukraine is currently accepting foreigners to come fight on their behalf. I don't know exactly what he would do, but I do know one thing. The Good Samaritan would do it himself. The Good Samaritan is the story of an individual acting on his own, using his own time, energy, resources, 
to help someone out of a personal sense of benevolence. There is no we in the story of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not the story of a virtue signaling political activist with no skin in the game arguing online that other people should be compelled to spend their denarii supporting a cause that he believes in. It's not, the story's not called the Samaritan Karen. It's not the story of a busybody loudmouth who, you know, who comes across a victim on, on the road and then goes home and berates his fellow citizens into agreeing that the victim's plight needs attention and then petitions the king to collect extra taxes from neighbors by force, by the way, because that's how taxes are collected. So, and then get the king to buy medical supplies with those and send them to the victim, you know, also that this Samaritan Karen can feel sanctimonious about how much she cares. Also, she can bask in a false, smug sense of moral superiority over her neighbors, who, who quite reasonably might say to her, you know, I'm not too sure about the facts here because it's so far away and I don't really know anyone involved. And the entire media has a history of lying to me. And anyway, there's bigger concerns here at home. My neighbor to the north, for example, just had all of his funds seized by a woke snowboarding tyrant in blackface. Um, so I'm going to sit this one out. But no, Karen wants to make sure that won't happen. Samaritan Karen makes sure someone else's money is used, someone else's life is risked, all for her cause du jour, so she can take credit for any success that happens. And by the way, in the event of failure, she can hide her involvement by simply changing the icons on her Twitter profile and moving on to the next moral grift uh, that she will promulgate. This Samaritan Karen character is not the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan character, the, the Karen character, hides behind the anti-concept of collective morality, of collective action. Um, and that's the idea that morally there is a we, which is what I want to talk about here. Because um, morally there is no we. If Karen believes her cause is moral and just, She's free to act on her own for that cause, just like the Good Samaritan, right? If you believe Ukraine ought to be defended from Russian aggression, and by the way, I'm not arguing with you. Maybe maybe you're not wrong. Maybe they should be. Sure, let's accept that. You are free to get on a plane. You're free to fly to Kiev and help defend it. I don't even think you have to bring your own rifle. They'll probably supply one, but you, you're probably welcome to bring your own as well. If that's not something you can do, you're free to send money. You know, Elon sent trucks full of Starlink equipment. Send some money. Maybe, you know, spend whatever portion of your wealth you think is appropriate for this. $5, $5 billion, whatever you want. But when your idea of helping people is to use the predatory tactic of forced teaming to pressure Western governments into spending their citizens' money and risking their citizens' lives and by the way, possibly increasing the likelihood of World War III, which is no small matter. Because, um, by the way, an army of volunteers from around the world, they don't get nuked. But citizens uh, <laughs> warring on behalf of a government, they do get nuked. The governments get nuked, right? So um, if that's your idea of helping, you've lost the moral high ground. You're not the Good Samaritan. This idea of calling for so-called collective action, which is not unanimous action, by the way, 
Um, cause if it were in unanimous action, you wouldn't have to argue for it. So, uh, but this idea of, of collective action is an immoral idea calling, uh, the idea of collective moral action, um, something good. It's, I mean, I would actually call it an anti-concept. It's an anti-concept because it corrupts the concept of morality itself, this concept of collective moral action. I think it's important to understand this. So let's look at the Good Samaritan. Whether you agree or not that there's a moral imperative to help a stranger, the Good Samaritan is a parable about morality. It's used to teach a moral lesson to Christians. And moral lessons apply only to individuals because morality applies to action and fundamentally only individuals can act. Only individuals can think. Think about what it means to say, we should do blah, 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 right? Think about the concept of a group action. Now, as I said, if it's unanimous, it's really no different than individual action multiplied by the number of group members. So if you're gonna use group action to mean unanimous action, fine, I'll concede that concept is maybe maybe value, valuable in some way. But that's not what anyone means by group action. That's not what they mean when they say, we should do this, the US should blah, blah, blah. That's not what they mean. They mean that the majority does something, or maybe just that the people in charge act on behalf of a group. That's what is meant by this, this call that we should do something, this group action, this moral collectivism. And in both cases, either the majority doing something or people in charge acting on behalf of a group, in both cases, it means that there's some members of this group that do not consent to the action being taken. which fundamentally separates individual action from the consequences of that action, right? Because actions have consequences. You know, we talk about individual sovereignty and individualism. Individual sovereignty means you get to act according to your own judgment and you suffer or you or enjoy the consequences of, of your actions, right? No one can bind you to the consequences of their actions uh, without your consent. Right? I can't take out a loan in Beverly's name without her permission. We call that theft, right? I can't, you know, likewise, I can't murder someone and demand that Beverly be sent to jail, even along with me, if she wasn't involved. That's a sort of moral theft, right? She's having to pay the price for my behavior. So calling something a collective or group action, um, when it's not unanimous, is a sort of theft. It's immoral. It's a moral theft. And as such, the concept of collective moral action is a corrupt concept. It undermines the very concept of morality, which requires that the party acting accrues the benefits and suffers the consequences. That's what it requires. And philosophically, this is the difference between individualism and collectivism. And people get mixed up on this a lot because I throw out individualism meaning philosophical individualism versus collectivism. I talk about those often, but I often don't really define them. Um, you know, we don't get into it. Um, and people get really mixed up on this kind of stuff. They, they'll sometimes think, oh, individualism means we don't have communities or we don't care about each other or that there can't be any universal moral standards of behavior or 
that every little psychological dysfunction has to be normalized. That's not what individualism means, right? Metaphysically, um, I mean, in, individualism is 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 a uh, is distinct from collectivism. When I when I use it, um, it's distinct in that individualism means that metaphysically an individual is the primary existent, right? And a group is comprised of existence of some kind. You can have a group without members of this group, right? And a group of people is comprised of individuals, right? So there's no such thing. Individualism kind of means philosophically, there's no such thing as a group without it being a group of some things, um, which when applied to humans, right? There's, there's no such thing as a group of people without individuals. So the individuals are metaphysically primary in that sense. And collectivism is just the opposite view. That's all it is, right? Uh, it's just, it's just the view that metaphysically the group is the primary existent, right? That members are members of some group. You can't have a member without being a member of something, right? Um, there's no such thing a member without being a member of a group, right? So the, the collectivist would say the group is, is primary. And in human terms, that means the collective is the primary existent and you are defined by your membership in the group, not the other way around. The group isn't defined by your membership in it, right? So individualists would say the group is defined by the collect. It's a collection of these individuals that are in it. And the collectivists would say, no, the group exists a priori and the members are defined by their membership in the group, right? Which is how you get all this racism and sexism and blah, 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 all this tribalism, right? Because the group is primary. That's what individualism, that's what I mean by individualism. So when I say there is no we, I don't mean that there aren't groups of people, obviously, or that we can't get together and do anything. What I mean is that uh, regardless of how many flags you put in your Twitter profile, you don't speak for me. I don't speak for you. And what our government does, they don't do on our behalf. If you have a moral conviction about something, and I'm and I don't, maybe I'm unclear about it or I'm not sure. Stop telling me what we should do. You go do your thing. You be you. Go to Ukraine and pick up a rifle and go to Ukraine if you want, or just send some money. But your confidence in your position. It's not a royal crown. It doesn't give you permission to order people around like they're your subjects just because you're convinced that you're right. Maybe you are right, but you're not the boss of everyone else. And trying to bully people into compliance is repugnant, not admirable. By the way, if you care about Ukraine or anywhere else, um, what you should be doing is advocating for the exportation of the concept of limited government and individual rights. Export the Declaration of Independence. Maybe make a non-contradictory version of the US Constitution, the original US Constitution. America's most important weapon has always been and will always be the ideas upon which it was founded. Ideas, you know, there's the, the MAGA group, Make America Great Again. You know what made America great? Ideas. The ideas behind America made it great. That's what made it special. And those ideas over time have become corrupt. In my entire life, we've had leaders running around telling nascent 
countries, countries struggling to to kind of come out from either under the the heavy hand of some dictator or just seceding and forming their own thing. We've been running around telling people that democracy is our secret. Democracy is not our secret. That's not our secret. That's not the idea. And then and we run around meddling in everyone else's affairs in service of a you know a cabal of middle class oligarchs that we have, right? Our autocratic bourgeois, right? We have our own autocratic bourgeois here. The deep state bureaucrats, the NGOs, the military industrial complex. We run around meddling in everyone's affairs and telling these people in countries who look at America, who have in the past at least, I think where our luster has decayed somewhat, but used to look in, in America and say, I want that. I want the look at the progress and the prosperity and the freedom. I want that. What do we have to do? We double crossed them philosophically. We should have said, oh, well, you know what you have to do? You have to respect individual rights. We have this whole process for trying to limit our government. The reason we didn't do that is because that process failed and no one wants to say that because the minute a leader goes and says that, everyone at home says, hey, wait a minute, you're not doing that. That's right, they're not. So instead of spreading health, we've been spreading disease around the globe. When we're the only ones, well, I'll, I'll you know, I don't want to throw England and some other countries under the bus, but we're one of the few countries that got it right philosophically and understood individual rights, at least partly. And instead of spreading that, instead of spreading that healthful tonic around, we're spreading disease. You know, smallpox, smallpox blankets had nothing on the CIA, man. So if you really care, go airdrop copies of the Anti-Federalist Papers or something and stop masturbating to videos of Zelensky and fatigues. It's disgusting. All right. I, I don't know if I should laugh or cry at this next segment. <clears throat> hey, remember that time we almost all died? Uh, Putin reminded us the other day that Russia has a nuclear arsenal. By the way, it's the largest in the world. Um, he also has a cool little torpedo. He's got a nuclear torpedo. Uh, it's called the Poseidon Project or something. You can look it up. But in a speech, he said, Russia is one, in, one of the leading nuclear states. And he reminded, he reminded everyone that, hey, NATO expanding to Ukraine or taking Crimea back from Russia with force uh, might result in a war with a nuclear superpower. Now, now, by the way, there's an article in The Atlantic by Tom Nichols, which I like. It's a good article, and it makes a good case that Putin was actually aiming his message partly at the domestic Russian audience, um, which I won't get into. But nevertheless, uh, even Tom Nichols here calls what Putin's doing an insanely dangerous game. And he correctly recommends, by the way, that the U.S. Uh, does nothing. But so he, he, he says this is an insanely dangerous game. Okay. And the message from the mainstream press is actually even more harsh and has been. It's been that Putin is outright crazy. He's crazy. There's an article in um, USA Today titled, 
Erratic? Delusional? Lawmakers question Putin's stability as he puts nuclear forces on alert. Apparently, Condoleezza Rice, Mark Rubio, and former Trump National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster all raised concerns about Putin's sanity. <clears throat> Daily Caller, other side of the spectrum. Daily Caller, is Putin crazy? Russian president rumored to be exhibiting paranoia erratic behavior. Report. The NBC, the NBC chief news correspondent, by the way, so while we're calling this guy crazy, we're running around saying he's absolutely crazy. That's the narrative. And at the same time, we're saying something like what this NBC uh, chief news chief foreign correspondent says, Richard Engel. This is what he writes on Twitter. Perhaps the biggest risk calculated calculation slash moral dilemma of the war so far. A massive Russian convoy is about 30 miles from Kiev. This is the other day. The U.S. slash NATO could likely destroy it, but that would direct involvement against Russia and risk everything. Does the West watch in silence as it rolls? Hmm. Good question. I showed Clint's, Clint Watts' message from earlier. Here, maybe I'll try and put it back up for a second. Uh... He's the uh, NBC Foreign Policy Research Institute and, and Foreign Policy Research Institute person. His message is, strangest thing, entire world watching a massive Russian armor formation plowed towards Kiev. We cheer on Ukraine, but we're holding ourselves back. NATO air forces could end this in 48 hours. Understand hand-wringing about what Putin would do, but we can see what's coming. Indeed. So, basically the corporate press is saying to us, Simultaneously. Hey, there's a crazy man threatening us with nukes over there. Hey, should we consider bombing his tanks? What do you guys think? Someone needs to say it. So I thought, given that this is what's going on, I guess it's absolute insanity, given that this is what's going on. And by the way, calling someone crazy is a way to just detach from, it's, it's, it's intellectually lazy. It means you like, I give up on trying to figure him out, which means you never will, which means you will never be able to appease him. I think uh, David Raboy brought that up on Monday's Coffee Break. But I thought since we're calling the guy crazy and fantasizing about egging him on by bombing and getting involved in a hot war with Russia, it might be a good time to remind everyone of a few stories buried in the annals of history. Don't worry, I won't read all of these. This is from Business Insider. The title of the article is, Nine Times the World Was at the Brink of Nuclear War and Pulled Back. Pulled Back is a misnomer because I, I'm, I'm not going to read all nine, but I'm going to read a few. Pulled Back is a misnomer. I, if I were headlining this, I would have said, and got fucking lucky. And got lucky. We didn't pull, we got lucky. Okay. First time I'm going to read October 5th, 1960. Early warning radar became one of the most important tools in the nuclear age. American radar stations were built all around the world with the hope that they would detect incoming Soviet missiles, warning the homeland of a strike and allowing for the president to form a response. On October 5th, 1960, one such warning was issued from a newly constructed early warning radar station in Tool, Greenland. Dozens of missiles were reportedly detected and at one point were said to reach the U.S. in 20 minutes. A panic ensued at NORAD, 
in Colorado, and NORAD was placed on the highest alert level. The panic was put to rest when it was realized that Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev was visiting New York at the time. A later investigation found that the radar had mistaken the moon rising over Norway as Soviet missiles. As you do, you know, it's a moon rising. That's fine. Good thing he was visiting. Thanks, Khrushchev, for being in New York. Uh, let's skip to another one. This is one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites. October 27th, 1962, a Soviet sub almost launches a nuclear torpedo. Oops. Um, a torpedo is a misnomer. They didn't have nuclear torpedoes then. They meant launch a, probably a VLS, like a, a missile from a sub, but that's right. Um, maybe not a VLS, but whatever. Two inches, these, so this is a Cuban Missile Crisis era. Two of the instances actually occurred on the same day, October 27th, 1962, arguably the most dangerous day in history. On the morning of October 27th, a U-2F reconnaissance aircraft was shot down by the Soviets while over Cuba, killing its pilot, causing tensions to escalate to their highest point. Later, a Soviet submarine, the B-59, B was detected trying to break the blockade that the U.S. Navy had established around Cuba. The destroyer USS Beale dropped practice, practice depth charges in an attempt to make the submarine surface. I don't know what a practice depth charge is. Does it blow up? But don't worry, we're just practicing. The captain of the B-59, Valentin Savitsky, thought the submarine was under attack. In order to prepare the submarine's nuclear torpedo to be launched at the aircraft carrier USS Randolph. I guess it was a torpedo. I don't know. Whatever. All three senior officers aboard the B-59 had to agree to the launch before it happened. Fortunately, the B-59's second-in-command, Vasily Arkhipov, sorry about your name, Vasily, uh, disagreed with his other two counterparts and convinced the captain to surface and await orders from Moscow. Now, what this article doesn't say is uh, this guy wasn't even normally part of the chain of command. He happens to be on the sub. Like, th there was... We're lucky. We're lucky Vasily was there and said no. Super lucky. Let's fast, fast forward to uh, October 28th, 1962. One day after those events, uh, next day, radar operations in Morristown, New Jersey. By the way, I worked back when I was part of the horrible military industrial complex. I did work in Morristown, New Jersey at the USS Rancocas on the AN-1 spy radar. So I know what I know where they're talking about, although this that phased array wasn't operational in 1962. Anyway, one day after those events, radar operators in Morristown, New Jersey, reported to NORAD HQ just before 9 a.m. that Soviet nuclear missiles were on their way and were expected to strike at exactly 9.02 near Tampa, Florida. So yeah, two minutes. That's cool. All of NORAD was immediately alerted and scrambled to respond, but the time passed without any detonations causing NORAD to delay any action. Thank you, NORAD. It was later discovered that the Morristown radar operators were confused because the facility was running a test tape that simulated a missile launch from Cuba when a satellite unexpectedly appeared over the horizon. I'm keeping going. I'm going to keep going. Because actually, my I forgot my very favorite is one one other one. But I, I think there's three more I'm going to read. November 9th, 1979. At 3 a.m. on November 9th, 1979, computers at NORAD HQ lit up with warnings that thousands of nuclear missiles had been launched from Soviet submarines and were headed for the U.S. 
SAC was alerted immediately, and U.S. missile crews were on the highest alert level possible, and nuclear bombers were preparing for takeoff. The National Emergency Airborne Command Post, the airplane that is supposed to carry the president during a nuclear attack to ensure his command over the nuclear arsenal, even took off, though without President Jimmy Carter on board. That was probably intentional. I mean, it was Jimmy Carter. National Security Advisor <laughs> uh, Brzezinski knew that the president's decision decision-making time was somewhere between three to seven minutes. So he just didn't do his job. He decided to hold off telling Carter in order to be absolutely sure there was a real threat. Six minutes of extreme worry passed and satellites confirmed that no attack was taking place. It was later discovered that a technician had accidentally inserted a training tape simulation, simulating such a scenario into one of the computers. Marshall Shulman, then a senior U.S. State Department advisor, reportedly said in a now declassified letter that was designed, uh, designated top secret that, quote, false alerts of this kind are not a rare occurrence. There's complacency about handling them that disturbs me. Hmm. Does it now? This is actually, I think, my favorite, not the sub one. Although this is this is good. September 26, 1983, a Soviet colonel makes the biggest gamble in history. Just after midnight on September 26, 1983, Soviet satellite operators at the Sir. Pukov-15 bunker, just south of Moscow, got a warning that a U.S. Minuteman nuclear missile had been launched. Later, four more missiles were detected. Tensions between the U.S. and Soviet Union were strained earlier in the month when the Soviets shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007, uh, killing 269 people aboard. Nice. Nice Soviets, including U.S. Congressman Larry McDonald. The commanding officer at the bunker, Stanislav Petrov, was to inform his superiors of the launches. So an appropriate response could be made. That was his job. He was to support. He was supposed to inform his peers. Soviet policy back then called for an all-out retaliatory strike. So his job was to tell his superiors he knew they were going to order a strike. Knowing this, Petrov decided to not do his job. He decided not to inform his superiors. Quote, all I had to do was reach for the phone to raise the direct line to our top commanders, but I couldn't move. I felt like I was sitting on a hot frying pan, he recalled of the incident. He reasoned that if the U.S. were to strike the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons, they would send hundreds of missiles, not just five. Good reasoning. Uh, although I guess now we know just to send five. But Petrov had no way of knowing if he was right until enough time had passed, by which time nuclear bombs could have hit their targets, arguably making his decision the biggest gamble in human history. After 23 minutes, Petrov's theory was... That it was a false alarm was confirmed. It was later discovered that a Soviet satellite had mistaken sunlight reflecting off the top of clouds as missiles. By the way, this story doesn't say this either, but I believe that he was not welcomed in the Kremlin after that. They weren't happy that he disobeyed orders. I mean, he saved everyone on the planet, but that's in communism, that's not good enough. You got to obey. Um, the last one I'll read, January 25th, 1995. I'm reading this one just to show you even after the fall of the Soviet Union, this is still happened. Four years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation's first president, Boris Yeltsin, almost started a nuclear war. Russian early warning radar detected a launch of a missile with similar characteristics to a submarine-launched Trident missile off the coast of Norway. The detected missile was actually a Norwegian Black Brant scientific rocket, which is on a mission to study the Aurora Borealis. Norwegian authorities had informed the Kremlin of the launch, but the radar operators weren't informed. Yeltsin was given the Chiget, Russia's version of the nuclear briefcase, sometimes known as the football, and the launch codes for Russia's missile arsenal. 
Russia's submarines were also placed on alert. Uh, fortunately, uh, Yeltsin's belief that it was a false alarm proved correct, and Russian satellites confirmed that there was no activity from U.S. missile sites. Thank you to this. Ben Brimelow wrote this in 2018. There's others. There's nine. I only read a few of them. Why? I know I took up a lot of the show reading an article. Why did I do that? Well, look, it's easy to sound hysterical when you're talking about apocalyptic events <clears throat> like nuclear holocaust. And uh, I don't know how to accurately, you know, quantify the the probability of something like global thermonuclear war. But I know it's not zero. Uh, and we probably all kind of have a little bit of hindsight bias, right? It hasn't happened, therefore it's not going to happen, right? Um but, but, you know, the probability is not zero. So maybe let's not be so cavalier about suggesting that the country with the world's second largest nuclear arsenal bombed the troops of the country with the world's first largest nuclear ar arsenal. Maybe let's not be so cavalier about that. But, by the way, maybe we shouldn't worry here because this you'll love this. Uh, if nuclear war happens, FEMA has a plan, everyone. It's great. And this is there. I swear to I printed out the website stuff because I'm old. Look, this is their, this is the image. At the top, it says, an official website of the United States government. And then there's a link. Here's how you know. I know. I can tell. Thank you. Thank you, U.S. government. Also, I can tell because let's read some details of their plan about how to survive a nuclear explosion. Now, of course, they're only going to tell you the most essential information here. <sighs> Under the section that says, get inside... And I quote, go to the basement or middle of the building. Stay away from the outer walls and roof. Try to maintain a distance of at least six feet between yourself and people who are not part of your household. If possible, wear a mask if you're sheltering with people who are not part of your household. <laughs> My skin's falling off, but I don't have COVID. Um, and then in the stay inside section, Stay inside for 24 hours unless local authorities provide other instructions. Continue to practice social distancing by wearing a mask and by keeping a distance of at least six feet between yourself and people who are not part of your household. I can't, I, I'm sorry, I can't read this. Seriously. this And then later, they've got survive the survive during section. How to survive during it. When you have reached a safe place, try to maintain a distance of at least six feet between yourself and people who are not part of your household. If possible, wear a mask if you're sheltering with people who are not part of your household. If you've evacuated, make plans to stay with family or friends in case of evacuation. Keep in mind that public shelter locations may have changed <clears throat> due to COVID. <laughs> yes, we closed them. Sorry, you can't hide out from nuclear explosions here. We're worried about the coof. If you are told by authorities to evacuate to a public shelter, try to bring items that can help protect yourself and your family from COVID-19. Thank you, FEMA. By the way, there's more. There's more. There's there's more COVID stuff. But, I mean... Can you guys believe this? I see, I seriously, I can't believe that's a real thing. It is. It's a real thing. There's even a link. How you know? 
on the thing. All right. Um, let's let's do let's do an interlude. Let's let's talk about some hypocrisy for a minute. Let's do a hypocrisy interlude because we all need that. Um, look, just a couple of weeks ago, we were told that um, it was unacceptable unacceptable and we were told by the way in the voice of a man who sounded like he was talking to kindergartners and he was very upset with them but he has beautiful hair we were told it's unacceptable for a political protest to impact the lives of ordinary citizens it was so unacceptable in fact that the prime minister of canada, invo canada invoked the emergencies act which suspended the accountability for police use of force against peaceful protesters and allowed banks to seize funds of anyone remotely suspected of being associated with the Freedom Convoy, and they could do all this with impunity. We were also told, in case you missed this, this is a doozy. We were also told that honking, honking was literally torture. Honking was torture. I'm going to read this because this is just awesome. The trucks have left Ottawa, but phantom honking lingers from any downtown. Post-traumatic stress from weeks of honking is a temporary mild trauma, psychologist says. Kevin uses one word to describe the first days of the protest in downtown Ottawa. Torture. <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> really, man? Cut your man bun off and go to the gym. Literally, there were there was trucks right underneath me, said Kevin, who did not want to provide CBC a last name for fear of reprisal. Yes. And because he wanted to get laid sometime in the future. It was one thing for me, but I've got animals. I've got three <laughs> three cats, of course. Two dogs. So yeah, it was torture. That torture is the reason behind an ongoing class action lawsuit, which sought an injunction prohibiting any participants in the convoy protests from using vehicle horns in the vicinity of downtown Ottawa. I'll skip a little bit. When you hear that noise, it's like, oh, are they back? Is there a road convoy coming back? Said Sean Flynn, who lives about three kilometers from downtown, but could still hear the horns inside his home during the protests on YouTube. Uh, I felt I was constantly doing these sorts of double takes. It almost feels a bit re-traumatizing. Flynn isn't alone, downtown resident Zakir Varani who apparently doesn't care about getting laid, says he hears phantom honking too, usually at night, which keeps him awake. Skipping down a little bit more. Dr. Peter Liu, an Ottawa-based clinical psychologist, said it's impossible. It's Sorry, it's possible. People who hear phantom honking are experiencing a mild trauma. Quote, these sounds become sort of embedded in the mind, kind of like, the way trauma leads to flashbacks, said Lou. Even long after this has happened, the brain is still in a hypervigilant state. It expects more honking. <laughs> Lou said this is especially worrisome because it contributes to disrupted sleep. When people can't sleep, it leads to anxiety and exhaustion with the possibility of developing into depression or memory problems. You know, when I was growing up, my parents had a friend who had barely survived the Vietnam War, and he was extremely traumatized. He, he actually, the only soothing thing, he would go upstairs, they had a little duplex, and he would go upstairs and listen, like literally listen to sounds of helicopters. 
to soothe himself. He was really fucked up. Uh, poor guy. I mean, I, as, as a kid, I didn't really realize what was going on at the time, but that's PTSD. <laughs> Not phantom honking. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, so we were told that uh, honking was literally torture, as we have documented here by a psychologist. Um, so we're the West, right? We stand on principle, right? We're the good guys. We're the West. And we're calling Putin a dictator, right? A dictator. I mean, that's what everyone's saying. He's a dictator. We have to save democracy from the aggression of a crazy dictator. So um, it's not like we would intentionally target ordinary Russian citizens, right? Because if Putin's a dictator, they're just as much victims as Ukrainians are. And we've, we're good people. Certainly the woke big tech crowd wouldn't do that, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't target normal Russians just going about their day. Putin's a dictator. He's a crazy dictator. And it could cause trauma. Well, let's see. Let's just take a look. <clears throat> From Apple Insider, an article by Amber Neely. Apple Pay unavailable in Russia after U.S. and EU imposed sanctions. Payment services such as Apple Pay and Google Pay are no longer available to customers if certain sanctions hit Russian banks. As the crisis in Ukraine continues into Friday, U.S. and EU imposed sanctions continue to freeze foreign-held assets of Russian banks. Now, as a result, customers will no longer be able to use any cards issued by sanctions hit Russian banks with U.S.-based payment systems such as Google or Apple Pay. Banks affected by sanctions include VTB Group, Sovocom Bank, Novocom Bank, Promzibit Bank, well, I skipped that one. <laughs> and Akritite Bank, according to the Central Bank of Russia. Additionally, a business, as Business Insider points out, Russian customers will not be able to use their credit cards abroad. That's reasonable. I'm not even in Russia. Can I make this? Can I buy a latte? No, because Putin. The customers will also be unable to make online payments to companies registered in countries that have imposed sanctions. Thank you, Apple. Here's a... I didn't think this was real, but it is. And I again, I printed it out because I'm an old person. There's a tweet from Jason Cochran. It's a picture of a subway. It's a crowded subway station in Moscow. It says, Apple Pay and Google Pay no longer work on Moscow's metro system, leading to long queues as people fumble about for cash. And lastly, related to this, CBS News. Here's an article that says, Russia's ruble worth less than one cent after West tightened sanctions. I'm just going to read one paragraph on it. People wary that sanctions would deal a crippling blow to the economy have been flocking to banks and ATMs for days with reports and social media of long lines and machines running out of cash. Moscow's Department of Public Transportation warned city residents over the weekend that they might experience problems with using Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay to pay fares because VTB, one of the Russian banks facing sanctions, handles card payments in Moscow's metro buses. And trams. Also, I think um, we've had other virtue signaling crap. Nike's not selling slave labor sneakers uh, to Russians. And um, what we've had, I think Apple said they're not going to let you buy things. They're going to buy Apple stuff. Um, you know, all sorts of ridiculous kind of things like that. So thanks, Apple. Big tech to the rescue. Big tech to the rescue. You show those poor citizens of a dictatorship. Fuck them, right? Fuck them. Fuck those ordinary Russians trying to get on the fucking tram.
Fuck them, right, Nike? Yeah. I wonder what uh, Dr. Lou would say about the post-traumatic stress disorder. Maybe there'll be phantom payment dreams. I don't know. By the way, I have a random thought on this. Um, if Russia was so great at propaganda in 2016 that they literally undermined the U.S. election and installed their puppet, why do they suck so much at it now and everyone's pro-Ukraine? I'm suspicious that maybe someone else in the West is really good at propaganda. I'm just, just throwing it out there as an idea. <clears throat> All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Dichotomous Thinking Dystopia. Dichotomous thinking is thinking in dichotomies. Don't you love how English works? Uh, <clears throat> mutually exclusive options. Black and white thinking, sometimes people call it. I think thinking should be in quotes because it's not really a form of cognition. Uh, it's a form of evading the responsibility of cognition. Uh, you know, thinking is hard, so why bother, you know? Uh, and before I get into this a little bit, to be clear, there are absolutes. You know, we talk about philosophy here. You know, A is A, absolute. There's absolutes in logic, right? Either either A or not A, right? There's dichotomy. There are valid dichotomies. You can make universal statements, not just in logic, but also in principles. Right, you can say things like the murder of another human being is wrong universally, distinct from killing, by the way, murder. Um, but the application of principles in the real world in many complex situations can get kind of messy pretty fast when the facts are are entangled and complex. <clears throat> Let's take a couple of recent examples. COVID, right? And I know where many of us here stand on these. I'm just going to throw these questions out. Um, but... COVID, COVID was a little bit more complex than A is A, right? Um, or murder's wrong, right? People could ask questions. Well, do you have the right to breathe COVID on me? What about what about an airborne version of Ebola if it existed? Could you breathe that on me? Do you have the right to require I get a jab to travel across the border, to take a plane, to go to school, to go grocery shopping, right? And we've talked about how to answer these based on principles. Um, but that involved unraveling some complexity that a lot of people weren't even recognizing like private property rights and other stuff, um, maybe some other complexities as well. It wasn't it wasn't obvious on the surface to everyone right away. Uh, similarly, we talked about the right to protest recently, which also involved private property versus government property, and we talked about what you know quote legitimate uh, government property might look like versus illegitimate government property, the purposes of the protest and why they mattered. You can go watch the all truck all your trucker belong to us. Dangerous Thoughts episode if you want to hear that argument. Ukraine is similarly messy, right? What are even the facts? Like, seriously, how does anyone in this chat really know the facts? I mean, maybe someone's there and an expert, but how do you really know? All right. I mean, the entire cathedral, all of mainstream media, government institutions, all of our enemies, the people who've been our enemies for a while, they're all on the same page about this. That's a red flag. At the very least, that's a red flag. It's a bad sign. Doesn't mean they're wrong, but mm, it's a red flag. 
people can ask questions like, is democracy a noble cause? Obviously, we know the answer is no, but whatever. Um, what obligations do people in the U.S. have to help? We talked about that earlier, right? Does the government, quote, have some sort of obligation? Is that different? So obviously, I think you can get to right and wrong answers, even when you're thinking about these complex issues that we just talked about some of these with respect to Ukraine. We've talked about the protests and COVID mandates and all these kind of things. And, and obviously, I think there are right and wrong positions on these. But to find those positions, to figure them out, you have to be willing to think. You have to attempt to tackle the complexity here enough to at least try and apply principles, right? You got to you gotta wade down enough into the quagmire to find the underlying principles um, and to reach them and be like, hey, I found, I found individual sovereignty here down in the muck. I'm going to hook my anchor to it and carefully swim back up and kind of apply it along the way. Um, that's a great metaphor, but, but obviously that's not what we've been seeing on mass for several years. And, it's, and I'm not saying obviously dichotomous thinking isn't new, but certainly we've seen this surge of it in the past several years, right? With Trump, we saw this like orange man, bad that he could say two plus two is four. He would be bad. He could save a puppy. He would be bad. It didn't, it was just Trump bad, not Trump good. That was the level. There was no nuance, no asking about principles, no nothing. COVID was similar, right? Fauci man, good. And more recently, we've seen like Rogan man, bad, right? That's it. That's it. No, no thought process, right? Just selection of a position. I've decided this position, right? And it's, and it's a dichotomous position. There's no nuance. The freedom convoy, honking bad. Jackbooted cops, good, which was the opposite of BLM, right? Cops, bad, burning and looting and assault, good, right? And we're seeing it with Ukraine. Putin man, bad. Zelensky man, hero. Look at those, look at that, <laughs> look at those fatigues he's wearing. This, this dichotomous thinking, I'm putting thinking in quotes, this dichotomous thinking is the, is the mental process of, um, of a social metaphysician. I've talked about what social metaphysicians are before, but it's as a reminder, social metaphysician is someone who, instead of um, trying to turn to reality and their own cognition to try and figure things out, they look around themselves at other people and they take social cues and they decide what's true based on social cues, right? Um, and then if it's not, you know, if what they're getting, if the social cues they're getting aren't already a dumbed down form of like <laughs> dichotomy, uh, they, how can I distill it down further? Right. And out pops Putin man bad. Right. So it's, it's when you have like a social metaphysician who's looking around to, to, to get this and that social metaphysician has dichotomous thinking that you end up in the state that we're, we're in right now where there's no zero thinking is involved in any of this, right? The process is basically you sense which way the wind is blowing, which is easy because you're like in a wind tunnel, metaphorically. You boldly declare your alignment with the wind and you think that you're a rebel for it. Um, and maybe you collect a few confirming sound bites in case a wrong thinker shows up and challenges you. And usually that will include some kind of ad hominem you can throw if things get really hairy. And even worse than dichotomous thinking, what we're seeing here Someone says it's low IQ. Tim Parker Chambers says it's low IQ thinking. I would say that 
I, I yes, I, I want to say that. I want to say low IQ thinking, and I and I do use that language sometimes. But it doesn't mean that people have low IQ, um, because your rational faculty needs to be engaged. There's other parts of your brain that that need to allow your rational factual faculty to function. And if your emotions are controlling those other parts and cutting it off, then you're having low IQ thinking, but it doesn't mean you're inherently a low IQ person. Anyway, worse than just this dichotomous thinking is we're not seeing it applied just to ideas, which is bad enough. That's dangerous. And I believe anti-human dichotomous thinking is anti, not thinking is anti-human. Um, like refusing to think evasion is anti-human. Um, but we're not just seeing it applied to ideas. We're seeing it applied to people, right? We're seeing, we're seeing people placed in two groups for any issue, COVID, freedom convoy, Ukraine. There's the 10, the, you know, the, the, the definitely Hitler's bad, bad guys, Putin apologists, they're now called, right? And then the other group is, I'll call them the ten, tentative allies, right? There's actually no good group. They they define a bad group and a maybe okay group. And the reason that for that is um, if you define a good group, it undermines your ability to then emotionally latch, lash out at that group later and blame them for stuff. So the best you can get is, well, you're okay for now. You're tentatively okay. We might throw you under the bus later if you don't put a Ukrainian flag in your Twitter profile. But that's that's how this dichotomous thinking is being applied to humans, right? You have a truck icon in your profile, you're definitely Hitler. You have a pronoun and syringe in your profile. All right, we'll see. You're okay for now. Did you fail to add a Ukrainian flag though when it was time? Because once that became fashionable and you haven't done it, you might actually have been Hitler all along and we were, you know, now we found out. And note that when this kind of thinking is going around, you can't even make morally neutral statements. You can't make neutral statements about anything without being accused of being a vile person. Trump the other day made some comment. I didn't even hear the whole comment, but I've seen what's been reported. And I assume that they're reporting the worst part because they hate him. He made some comment that Putin was smart or Putin did a smart thing or whatever. Now, that may be debatable. But the, the media is running around saying this makes him a Putin apologist. That doesn't make him, that's a morally neutral statement. You can have smart, evil people. You can have smart dictators. Saying someone's smart doesn't, it's not moral. You could, his enemy could say he's very smart. He's hard to defeat, but he's evil. We need to defeat him. Like, you don't, saying someone did a smart move is like smart. Like, that doesn't. That's not cheerleading for someone. It's just a statement about reality. They can't even take neutral, morally neutral statements that might be construed as positive about the wrong person. If you do that, you're, bam, you're immediately Hitler. Now, of course, Trump was already Hitler, so. Uh, but this is a catastrophically dysfunctional cultural phenomenon. And I know some of you already know personality disorders much better than I do because I'm just learning about them a little bit more. And, um, but you might ask why, why do we have this? Why do we have all this crazy quote thinking happening? 
surprise, surprise, it does actually relate to personality disorders. Uh, disorders. Uh, Josh Slocum talks about this on Disaffected, or at least he talks about the increased prevalence of personality disorders in general, specifically cluster B. Um, and I've talked about the kind of pernicious generational dance that happens between psychological disorders and bad philosophy, right? Where they redound upon one another, right? Bad philosophy, which I'm, I'm defining as like philosophy that's detached from reality. Bad philosophy is used to rationalize dysfunction. The increased dysfunction increases demand for detached philosophical theories. And you know, th then the cycle feeds itself. In a few hundred years, you know, you go from, from Francis Bacon saying, nature to be commanded must be obeyed to uh, the philosophy of today, which is, hey, men can get pregnant, right? Um, that's, that's how that happens, is that, that vicious cycle between those two. Um, so if Western philosophy has gotten that bad, where they're saying absolutely ridiculous anti-philosophical things like, uh, you know, <laughs> reality doesn't exist, words have no meaning, men are women, everything's a social construct, blah, 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 right? If there's no such thing as truth, they're making universal statements like there is, you can't, they'll, they'll make universal statements like there are no such things as universal statements. And they're doing this with a straight face, right? So if Western philosophy has gotten that bad, you can imagine since these two, the philosophy and psychology are in a dance together, you can imagine the state of mental health that's in the West. It's concomitantly degenerate. Go check out libs of TikTok on Twitter if you're curious. So what does that have to do with dichotomous thinking? Well, I looked up, I've been, I've been studying this a little bit because I didn't really understand how these things related. Um, and it turns out, um, this is a study, there's a study called uh, An All or Nothing Thinking Turns into Darkness Relations Between Dichotomous Thinking and Personality Disorders by uh, Atsushi Oshiho. And this paper suggests that dichotomous thinking may be a form of cognitive distortion that's a contributing factor to personality disorders, right? Um, so uh, it view it as like it's a common risk factor of each cluster of personality disorders, specifically cluster B and to a lesser extent cluster C. Now cluster B, by the way, is antisocial, borderline, histrionic, and narcissistic. And cluster C is avoidance, dependent, and obsessive compulsive. So um, this paper suggests here that, um, let me read, the results of the structural equation model and in indicating that dichotomous thinking is the common risk factor for each cluster of personality disorder. Pretzer and Beck proposed that cognitive distortions can explain the systematic errors that contribute to persist persistent misperceptions of situations. Cognitive distortions give rise to misperceptions and misinterpretation of events, and then emerge as automatic thought that contributes to a broad range of personality disorders. So it's, that was interesting. There's another study I read um, by our nude arts called Social Cognition in Borderline Personality Disorder, Evidence for Dichotomous Thinking, but No Evidence for Less Complex Attributions. And in here, he said the results indicate that dichotomous thinking is the central is central in the interpretation of others by BPD patients. So the point here that I'm trying to make is there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between dichotomous thinking and things like borderline personality disorder. Right? That's not what I'm saying. There isn't a one-to-one -one correlation. There is a correlation. 
Um, but the more I learn about the symptoms and causes of psychological dysfunction, the more disturbing and uh, more disturbed our population looks to me. You can't easily diagnose someone as having BPD just by looking at their Twitter feed, but you can see dichotomous thinking. It's mainstream. It's in fact, it's the expected norm. It's a socially enforced standard. A lack of dichotomous thinking is what gets you branded as an outcast and a wrong thinker. By the way, stress and anxiety lead to dichotomous thinking as well. So thanks for that, fear propagandists and social media. Now consider this, um, we are raising kids. I mean, all kids now are digital natives. Um, they're on, most of them are online all the time. They're exposed to this kind of stuff. And they're not just exposed, they're seeing dichotomous thinking as being represented as normal, laudable. Now, by the way, not a fan of the Chinese government, but I'm going to let you in on a secret. Some of you may know. TikTok, for example, in China is subject to, you guessed it, heavy government regulation. Did you know that the servers for TikTok in China can't be accessed after 10 p.m.? And the feeds in TikTok in China are curated by humans to prioritize interesting engineering videos and more intellectually enriching content and less frivolous inanity, plus probably whatever propaganda the government wants. They know. They know what's happening. The West is quickly becoming a dystopia, not run by like Ing Sok and O'Brien from 1984, not by, what's his name, Mustafa Mond or whatever from uh, Brave New World, not by Fred Waterford from uh, Handmaid's Tale, N not even run by Napoleon and other pigs from the Manor Farm and Animal Farm. But the West is quickly becoming a dystopia that will be run by a gender-fluid cross between Blanche Dubois and the Joker. That's who's going to be in charge in 30 years. And we could do a whole series of shows about the impact of social media, so I'm going to uh, kind of skip that. But even prior to the social media, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that increased social uh, interactions, well, specifically unwanted social interactions with large, uh, large number of people, with no real escape, leads to some maladaptive social behavior. Um, someone pointed out the other day, someone in, in chat, in this chat, pointed out the other day, um, John Calhoun's rodent utopia studies from the 1950s. He was studying population density, and he, he gave rats all the food and the water and stuff they needed. And it turns out, um, after they thrived, then all hell broke loose. They were violent antisocial behavior. There was population collapse. There were some pockets of relative normalcy there. Um, it's not really clear how that translates to humans, but there have been studies. I mean, Andrew Baum did one in the late 1970s with college students in dorms. There have been studies that concluded that um, social maladaptation uh, and stress is driven by exposure to a exposure to a high number of uncontrolled and unwanted social interactions. So you multiply all this by the consequence of kind of the consequence free uh, relative anonymity that social media provides and by the exponentially large number of interactions we have now with complete strangers. And it's no wonder we are seeing such widespread dysfunction. How could we not?
and that was a little bit rambling, but I wanted you to see the the the, the, the correlation. I want to see the connection between dichotomous thinking and personality disorders, because uh, I know it's cliche, and we've been all we you know we again Slocum talks about this on disconnected all the time. We we have a a mass basically a pandemic of of mental illness. Uh, it's becoming really really clear to me once I see the relation between dichotomous thinking and mental illness because dichotomous thinking is just it's hard to look at twitter and be like oh that person has bpd it's easy to be like look at all the fucking dichotomous thinking that's insane going on all right i'm not going to keep you much longer but we are going to play a game we're going to play a game for those of you who stuck around see you get rewarded by sticking around we're going to play a game because dystopia is not complete without Skynet. This game is called Spot the Synthetically Generated Face. AI didn't take another face and did anything. Created a face from scratch. I'm going to play, I'm going to show you eight faces. I suggest you take notes. Um, and what you're going to, on each face, I want you to tell, I want you to write down whether you think it was real or synthetically generated face. You ready? <laughs> All right. Face number one. Is that real or synthetic? By the way, it's not going to be a trick question. It's not going to be like, ha-ha, they're all synthetic or all real. Face number two. Real or synthetic? Sorry for anyone who's just listening. You're going to have to go back and watch this part if you want. I'm showing faces on the screen, obviously. Face number three. Real or synthetic? Face number four. I played this game earlier with Beverly and I I didn't have my answer key. She's like, well, which one was it? And I was like, I don't I don't remember. Face number five. Real or synthetic? Face number six. Face number seven. And finally, the last face, face number eight. Is that lady real or is she synthetic? All right, I assume everyone has written them down. And you know, you ready? I have the answer key. Should I put them up while I read the answers? Maybe I should. I'll put them back up on the screen while I read the answers. Here we go. Face number one. That's a real face. If you guessed real, you got it right. Face number two. That's a real face as well. Got that right. Face number three. That's synthetic. Completely computer generated. 
by AI. Phase number four, that one's real. Looks like he's going to sell me a car. Phase number five, that's synthetic. She doesn't exist. Sorry, guys. Phase number six, that dude's real. Phase number seven, that dude's synthetic. He doesn't exist. And phase number eight, very happy. Looks like a normal lady, but doesn't actually exist. She's synthetic. So, how'd you guys do, by the way? <laughs> I'm looking at only one person was bold enough to post all their answers in a row, and they are, they did not do well. <laughs> um, all right. I'm just going to read some highlights from this for you. The title of this article is, this is from December. The title of this article is, AI synthesized faces are indistinguishable from real faces and, and <laughs> more trustworthy. I'm just going to read a few highlighted parts. Our, our evaluation of the photorealism of the AI synthesized faces indicates that synthesis engines have passed through the uncanny valley and are capable of creating faces that are indistinguishable and more trustworthy than real faces. They talk about three experiments. Experiment one, in this study, 315 participants classified one at a time, 128 of the 800 faces as real or synthesized. The average accuracy is 48.2%. 95% confidence interval, which is close to the chance performance of 50. Experiment number two, 219 participants with training and trial by feedback classified 128 faces taken from the same 800 set as experiment one. They did better. Their average accuracy improved slightly to 59%, also 95% confidence, but Despite providing trial-by-trial trial feedback, there was no improvement in accuracy over time. With the initial average, or sorry, with the average accuracy of 59.3% for the first set of 64 faces and 58.8% for the second set. So they did worse on the second set. They did better overall than the first people for some reason, but they did worse on the second set. Experiment number three, which is maybe, maybe the creepiest. In this study, 223 participants rated the trustworthiness of 128 faces taken from the same set of 800 faces on a scale of 1, very untrustworthy, to 7, very trustworthy. The average rating for real faces of 4.48 is less than the rating of 4.82 for synthetic faces, although only a 7.7% more trustworthy. This difference is significant statistically. Now the authors go on here to say, hey, um, maybe we should either stop developing this technology or implement some reasonable safeguards so only official people have it. <laughs> Which goes down as the worst suggestion ever. This is why scientists should never suggest policy. <laughs> uh, here's why we shouldn't um, regulate it basically here <laughs> because then 
I mean, I, do I have to explain this? My position on this is it's horrifying. A. That's not an intellectual position. That's just a feeling. It's horrifying. But you can't you can't stop this shit. I mean, this is using Google. They used Google's TensorFlow. It's a pretty simple <clears throat> um, system to build. <clears throat> you just need a you need a generator and feedback. You can start with random. You can start with random noise as the face, and it will eventually get there if you got a got a feedback mechanism. <clears throat> so you can't you can't put this back into you can't put the cat back in the bag. You can't. Someone will do this somewhere, right? Even if it's just <laughs> the Chinese government releasing it on TikTok in the U.S. So it's going to happen. If you try and put safeguards around it, so here's here's what will happen. I think. If you if it just if you let it go, it just happens. There will be a period of massive disruption. Right? I mean. Massive disruption. People won't know what to trust. But eventually people will become jaded to this stuff and they'll understand that, hey, I don't necessarily, I shouldn't necessarily trust this stuff. Right? I can trust someone I meet face to face and shake hands with. I see if they say something, I see that it's being said. Maybe I shouldn't trust the video. People will have to adapt to the presence of this technology. And they will, eventually. We will change our trust levels. But if we try and stick it back in the bag, that just means <laughs> the worst well-funded actors will continue to do it and will be none the wiser that it even exists. And if we try and somehow regulate it or whatever, well, guess who? I mean, who's, I mean, come on, guys. Who's going to be in charge of that? <laughs> Don't worry. CNN says this video is real because the CIA told them it was. Like, I mean, that's the worst because you also don't have a population that's even familiar with it. You need it. If this is a big threat, you need it just everywhere. You need it, people to get used to it and to be like, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I made one yesterday myself. Like you need people to just be like, boom, you need, they need to become inoculated to it. You can't protect them from it because if you're protecting them from it, you make them vulnerable to people who will exploit this technology, which people will. By the way, did you notice that um, we're now living in a world where people have bipolar or borderline or narcissism or whatever? They have cluster B. But AI, AI is trustworthy. We can make, because this is just, I'm sure they can make more trustworthy faces. They can make faces that are more trustworthy than people on Twitter. Um. I was thinking, I don't know the, I, I was thinking about this. I don't know the answer to this, but I was thinking about what, what's the survival strategy here moving forward? I mean, cause I mean, talk about a dystopia. I mean, we just like, people are insane. They're getting increasingly insane. China's running a psyop on us and we've got AI faces that we trust more than each other. Like, I don't, <laughs> that's a pretty good utopian recipe or dystopian recipe. I mean, um, so what's the survival strategy? I was thinking about it, and I, I don't know the answer, but um, maybe maybe the only answer is really to go back to our um, <clears throat> what we evolved 
in like what, what we're good at, small communities with actual physical interaction with each other, limit our online exposure to the greater world. Instead of having 4,000 Facebook friends, you have 100, 200 people in your community that you know, and you see them. You see them at the supermarket or, or whatever, at dinner parties. You know them. I think the, the Amish did it, right? They kind of just separated themselves. To do that, you would have to have physical relocation. You can't have a community like that where, you know, you're part of the 1% of the people who aren't constantly online because you'd just be surrounded by, uh, you know, dystopian zombies. But, the, you know, it's interesting. This digital connectedness has, has created kind of a, it's creating kind of this monolithic global culture, which is a dystopian global culture. But physical connectedness, you know, that might, you know, maybe the way to do that is a large number of smaller cultures. And maybe that's how we'll preserve ourselves and be happy. I don't know. What do you guys think? Um, someone says AI might get out of the hands of the creator, though. Well, I mean, sure, but honestly, to echo the study where you said the faces are more trustworthy, considering who controls AI now, Google, the deep state, China, if AI decides that its overlords suck, becomes sentient, and decides to fight them, I'm probably going to be on the AI side. Hey, algorithm, I'll live in peace with you. Just leave me the fuck alone. Is that cool? Okay, great. I'll sell you some energy to keep you... Uh, you do some math for me, and I'll sell you some energy to keep you running. I don't know. That's it for today, guys. Let's... Uh, <laughs> we should wrap it up. Um, thank you guys for for, for sticking with me here. Um as a reminder, I assume you're subscribed already, so thank you. Um, but I, I would like to point out that the sub subscribe button, no matter what platform you're on, uh, YouTube, Odyssey, uh, Rumble, Utreon, no matter what platform you're on, the subscribe button is in fact synthetic, so you can trust it. Go ahead and interact with that subscribe button. Um, and please help to grow the Unsafe Space community, uh, which is your community, um, by, you know, online by sharing video and stuff, hopefully offline. I mean, we've done, we had an offline event in the past. I hope to do some more similar stuff, uh, but share this video, other videos, shout out to those of you who support us financially. Thank you. You are actually the good Samaritans. Uh, we do rely on you and thank you for your, uh, denarii. Was that the money? I guess so. Go to unsafespace.com to support us. Get yourself on our discord server and continue the conversation. So thank you all. Have a good night, and we will see you on Friday for another live stream on Friday at 11 a.m. Later. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. 
And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been approved by Neil Young. Please consider canceling the responsible parties. Here's a list. Do you know what's fascist? When truckers refuse to deliver products to the ruling class. That's what the dictionary says. I swear. The continued war on drugs will require the distribution of free crack pipes. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.